Hi, this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We are a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Uh, after the service this morning, we went over to Suffolk High School, the, the former Suffolk High School, that's what I call it, and had lunch at the Oasis, and then we wandered around a little bit, and so I've been wandering around this building, and then we wandered around over there, and just a lot of memories, a lot of great nostalgia, uh, it all comes rushing back. You know, one of the themes of the Old Testament, a word comes up often, is the word remember. The children of Israel remembered what God had been doing uh, in and through their history. And in our Christian faith, we have that time of remembrance too. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are remembering the Lord's death till He comes. So it's important to remember. When I was over at the school today, I was uh, thinking about Mrs. Lipscomb. Now, she had retired before I got over there, but I remember one day I was in high school and she was substituting and uh, in an English class, I, as I remember it, and, and she asked a question about an obscure biblical allusion, and I raised my hand and I answered the question. Now, she didn't know me, but she looked at me and she said, I bet you go to First Baptist Church, don't you? I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. She said, over the years, and she had taught 50 or 70 or 80 years over there, she said, over the years, I noticed that it's the kids from First Baptist Church who always know the Bible question. Now, you need to take pride in that. That's important. And I know that's still true, that it's the folks that come through here who know their Bibles because you love the Bible so much. I thought about another teacher, Mrs. Lynch. She taught geometry, and I, I didn't do well in that at all. And She knew I was a Christian. She knew I was headed for ministry. So every time she put a D or an F on my paper, she would write a scripture verse under it. And the one she used the most was, Donnie, show yourself, study to show yourself approved. And uh, she got to me that way. And then memories here. You know, you've had great pastors but you've had great staff people, too. Just like now, over the years, you've had wonderful staff people. I grew up, I came of age here in the late 50s and all during the 60s into the 70s. And those were the days when we had vacation Bible school in the daytime for two weeks running. Does anybody remember that? Two. Now, nobody would dare do that today. You just couldn't do it. But in those days, we did, and we learned the Bible. Well, I didn't want to go to Bible school. We had to wear long pants. The guys couldn't wear short pants. And I think the girls may have had to wear dresses to vacation Bible school in the summertime. And I didn't want to go. And I was drifting away at age 12. I was drifting away and losing interest in church. And my mother, Frances, you might know her as Frances McGahee. She's been in heaven now for many years. But my mother was concerned, and she called the minister of education up here, Lloyd Kindiger. Do you remember his name? Lloyd Kindiger. And she told him she was concerned about me, and she said, could you give him a job, something at church to keep him involved? So he made me the general secretary of vacation Bible school. I didn't want to come, but I had an office. I had an office. It was a corner office at the church for those two weeks, and I kept all the records. 
but it worked. And along came Tommy Lovern, minister of music and youth, who got a hold of me and drugged me into youth choir when I didn't want to do that either. And it was out of that experience that God saved me and God called me into ministry. Uh, a lot of memories. I don't want to linger with that. Maybe I'll share some more later. You are ready now, aren't you, to look at uh, Luke chapter 20? Everybody complete your assignment for the afternoon? No, you didn't do it. But I want you to catch up now. Keep up with me. And tomorrow, in spare time, read Luke 21. Interesting chapter. Now, you think you know what it's about, but maybe you don't. So read it very carefully, Luke 21. And if you don't have... Time to read. Do what my wife and I have started doing around the house. We have an app on our iPad called YouVersion. You know what I'm talking about? It's the Bible in any translation you want. And you just punch it in and put it on audio, and it will read the Bible to you. Now, how great is that? It will read the Bible to you. And we just leave it on around the house. We're doing other things, but we're saturating our house and our conversation with the Bible. And every now and then we'll just kind of fall into a verse and quote it to each other and talk about it. And that's putting the Word of God in our hearts. Well, that's tomorrow night. Tonight we are at Luke chapter 20. And I've entitled this study, A Press Conference with Jesus. A Press Conference with Jesus. The modern presidential press conference uh, began with Franklin Roosevelt. You may find this hard to believe, but before Roosevelt, uh, reporters had to submit their questions to the president in writing, sometimes days earlier, so he could think about it, so he could come up with an answer that might satisfy, a well-nuanced answer. But when Roosevelt became president, he called the press around his desk. He could not walk. He called them around his desk, and he said, we're going to try something different. You just fire your questions at me. And I'll do my best to answer. And he was president for 12 years, and he had 998 press conferences. And they were always entertaining. Sometimes he'd say, you can't quote me on this. This is off the record. But they, uh, they supported him, they loved him, and they were right there at his side. John F. Kennedy was the best with his humor and wit and natural ease. He began the televised press conference during the daytime. And he always had something funny to say that put others at ease. Nixon was not too good at press conferences. Nixon was defeated for president in 1960. Then he ran for uh, the, the governorship of California in 1962. And when he lost that, he called the press together and he said, You're not going to have Nixon to kick around anymore for this gentleman is my last press conference. And of course, it wasn't but he didn't have good relations with the press. President Ronald Reagan, you know, he would always uh, keep the helicopter motors revved up and he would walk out, and when Sam Donaldson would call out a question, he would say, I can't hear you, Sam, because of the helicopter. And he'd get on and fly away. That's, that's interesting. That's how he did it. Not everybody's good with this format, questions and answers, the man in the arena. You just stand there and people fire away at you. But Jesus was a master at it. Jesus was great with Q and A. If you're going to be a leader, you kind of have to be. He was exceptional. He would answer, sometimes would answer a question with a question. You see that? Look at chapter 20, 
They're trying to get to him, and these uh, leaders, the Sanhedrin, these uh, folks who are opposed to him, they want to know, where did you get the authority to do this? Who gave you the authority? Verse 2. Verse 3, he replied, I'll also ask you a question. He hadn't answered their question. He says, let me ask you one. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And his questioners know that now Jesus has got them because either way they go, they're going to divide the crowd. And they're amazed at his ability. He would answer a question with a question. Look over at verse 23. He's also good because he knows the motives. He knows the press are not with him. He knows they're looking to trip him up. Verse 23. He saw through their duplicity. He knew their motives. You see, when they ask questions, every one of these questions, when they talk to Jesus, they're not really looking for answers. They're trying to catch him with a misstatement. They're trying to catch him in some sort of flaw. They can get a sound bite to use against him. He saw through all of that. Jesus was great at this. He kept his answers short and simple. When they ask him about taxes, he gives that memorable line, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. You might not know this, but liberal scholars doubt a lot of things that are in the Bible. Uh, you know that, don't you? They, they doubt a lot of it. They say, no, this couldn't happen. That's mythology. He never did this. He never said that. Scholars universally agree that if Jesus said one thing in his ministry, he said this. The perfect soundbite. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And, and best of all, Jesus was great at this because Jesus would answer the question he wanted you to ask. Not the question you ask. All experts. I have a lot of uh, media folk in my church and, and the congressional staff people. And, and I ask them this question. What's the secret to a press conference? And they all say the same thing. Answer the question you wish they had asked you instead of the one that they did. And you'll see this in a minute when we get to the question about uh, who am I going to be married to in heaven. Jesus gives an answer. It doesn't totally satisfy us the answer that he gives, but that's not what he wants to talk about anyway. And he quickly changes the subject to talk about what's more important even than that. And that is the whole matter of eternal life and heaven after we die. Well, in chapter 20, Jesus answers two main questions, and they are issues that are important to us still. He talks about taxes, and he talks about death. Death and taxes. What else is there? And April 15th is coming up, so you need to listen. Let's talk first of all about taxes. Look at chapter 20, verse 20. 20, verse 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher? We know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, I don't think they mean that. I think they're just trying to butter him up. They're trying to set him up as they move in for the kill. But isn't this a great thing to have said about you? Thurman, wouldn't you like this to be said about you? Let me read it again. You speak and teach what is right. Right. 
And you do not show partiality. That means you do not recognize faces. You don't say one thing to one person and something else to somebody else, depending on the audience. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They don't mean it about Jesus, but it's a great thing to say. Here's the question. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, they're not asking about all the taxes you might end up paying in your life. They're asking about one specific tax. It's a poll tax, and it is a tax that went directly into the coffers of Caesar. It paid for the roads. It paid for uh, the military. It, it paid for whatever Caesar wanted to do. And the Jewish people despised it. It was just another reminder that they were under control of a dominating foreign power. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and he said to them, Well, show me a denarius. Whose portrait and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He asked them, show me a coin. And this shows the humor of Jesus. He's like Kennedy in, in, this, in this way. He uses a little bit of humor. He says, give me a coin. And so this religious leader reaches into his tunic and pulls out a denarius, which he should not have had on his person because it had an image on it. It's kind of like a kotcha. It's kind of a humorous moment. Whose picture? What inscription? And he looked at it, and it was an, a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So Jesus says, well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. Now, first of all, let me say that the short answer to the question is, yes, you do have to pay your taxes. Time magazine last week was trying to explain the sequester and uh, what it would mean for folks. And somebody had asked the question, well, do I have to pay my taxes on April 15 or will the IRS all be laid off before then? And Time magazine answered, well, they may be laid off, but not before April the 15th. So, yes, you do have to pay your taxes. And in any case, the FBI is not going to be laid off, and they will come and arrest you. You can't make a case from the Bible for not paying your taxes. Romans chapter 13, Paul the Apostle says, pay your taxes. Pay the revenue that is due. It's part of our responsibility as citizens to pray for those in authority over us. We get to elect those in authority over us, but we're certainly supposed to pay our taxes. But this is a specific tax, and either way Jesus answers the question uh, could get him into trouble. If he said, no, you don't have to pay your taxes, then they'd go straight to the Roman officials. They'd, they'd be on Pilate's doorstep that day. He's, he's uh, trying to get people not to pay their taxes. He's against Rome, and then Rome would have to step in and do something about it. But if he said, pay your taxes, that would en enrage the Jewish people. There were those, we know their names, who taught that to pay taxes to Rome was treason to God. There's no way he can win. But then he gives this brilliant answer. Whose picture's on the coin? What's the inscription? 
It's got Caesar all over it. So Jesus said, give it back to him or give that portion that belongs to him for the roads, for the military, for the things that are necessary. But give to God that which belongs to God. Now here's the brilliance of all of that. If they were listening, they got it. And I think they understood. That's why they can't say anything about it. Jesus is saying, yeah, pay the money to Caesar. Do that. But more importantly, give everything you are to God because you have on your person stamped the image of God. That goes all the way back to page 2 of your Bible. That God created man in His image. You were made in the image of God. And if you're a Christian, then you belong to Him. He not only created you, He saved you. He's put His stamp or His seal upon you. So all that you are belongs to Him. So give yourself to Him. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that, that we never meet, you never meet a mere mortal. Never in your daily uh, interactions with po- you're not talking to somebody who's merely immortal. Everybody you encounter is eternal. Everybody you see is going to live forever, either with God or away from Him, either in heaven or in hell. No mere mortals here. We're all made in the image of God. Now that image has fallen. It's marred. But when we come to Christ, it's remade. Restored again into that image. Sometimes when uh, folks make a mistake in their life, maybe this has happened to you, or you're talking about somebody who's fallen in some way, somebody will say, well, you know, they're only human. Or, well, I'm only human. What do you expect? And it's also almost like being human is a bad thing. It's not. It's a good thing to be a human being because God made you. He created you. You are His masterpiece. God is an artist. We said that this morning. And you are His masterpiece according to Ephesians chapter 2. You're His poem. You're His grand work of art. And God is able to take uh, even messes we make and do wonderful things with it. Wynton Marcellus is the uh, great uh, jazz trumpeter. And uh, several years ago, he was playing in a little club, a jazz club in New York City. And uh, the crowd was packing the little club, and they were just, they were hanging on every note that he played. And he he was uh, wrapping up his concert with that old jazz standard, I don't stand the ghost of a chance with you. Maybe you'll remember that song. And, And it's just being played beautifully. And he gets to the last line, I don't stand a ghost. And somebody's cell phone went off in the crowd. Don't you hate when that happens? You ever been to any kind of concert or a wedding or a funeral? Check your phone right now. Make sure it doesn't happen and ruin this story. But but a phone went off and it was playing one of those horrible little jingles that are totally inappropriate usually and at high volume. Why do people put it on high volume? But he's playing this jazz standard and suddenly Dixie comes playing over the guy's cell phone. Well, the crowd erupts in rage. This guy just ruined the concert and everybody's turning and looking at him and the guy stands up and runs out of the club for his life. 
But Marcellus does something else. He's been playing the jazz standard. And suddenly, without anybody noticing he's doing it, he's beginning to play the jingle from the cell phone that can still be heard racing out of the room. He begins to play that song. Variations on it. This way and that way. He goes for five minutes playing up and down that song. And everybody settles down and they're hanging on every note. And then he just segues perfectly in to I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And the crowd, they're on their feet. What just happened? The master musician took a bad thing and worked it right into the beautiful work of art he was doing. And I I think about life that way. I think that's what God does in our lives. He has a great plan for our lives, and then we come along and we, we make bad choices and we make horrible mistakes and deliberate sins, and God is able, if we let Him, Romans 8.28, God is able to take all of that and work it together for good. It's all right to be human. God showed us that when Jesus chose to come to this earth as a human being. And as we'll see at the end of this conference, when Jesus came up out of the grave, yeah, the body is good. And you're made in the image of God. So, pay Caesar his taxes, but everything belongs to God. So give him everything. Brilliant answer. Now look at verse 27. Here's here's the other question. Some of the Sadducees, now this is the first time we meet them. You've, You've heard of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but you never see the Sadducees except here. Sadducees were religious leaders. They they tended to be the priests. They didn't leave any writings, so all we really know about them is what the gospel tells us. And Luke knows we don't know anything about them, so he tells us something. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, that's the thing you need to know for this story to work. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the supernatural. The reason is they only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They didn't take the whole Old Testament. They just took the five books of Moses. And I'll be honest with you, you don't find much. It's hard to find uh, heaven and eternal life and resurrection in the first five books of, of Moses. You, you can do it, but it's hard to do. And so they, they didn't believe it. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, he's talking about Leverite marriage. You read about that in, in the, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. Leverite marriage. It's spelled out. They're exactly right. Moses did teach this, that if you're married to a woman and you don't have any children, and you die, it was now your brother's responsibility. Next in line, your brother's responsibility to step up, do the right thing, and marry the widow and have children with her for his brother. Two reasons. One, to protect the widow. Otherwise, she's going to be out on the street. No social safety net. 
So do it for her. But secondly, do it to keep all the money in the family. You don't want her marrying some truck driver somewhere and going off with the farm. So keep it in the family. And so that's what they would do. Now here's the hypothetical. Now there were seven brothers, verse 29 says. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, now remember, they don't believe in a resurrection. So that tells you right there, their motive is wrong. They're trying to trap him with this hypothetical. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now imagine, you know, you, you, get, you open your mail and you get another wedding invitation. And you were just at this woman's wedding last year. And now you're here again. And three years ago, you were at another one of her weddings. And, and then there are all the showers, and you're invited to all of them. And you gave her a toaster, and you gave her a piece of china. And you're tired of going to this woman's weddings. And if you go, you're going to throw minute rice, because you know it's not going to last long. She's not going to stay married that long. If I saw her, I would, I would just say, you know, you're probably just bad luck, aren't you? They, all, they marry her, and then they die. Now, the question is, okay, now you're in heaven, and you were married to seven men. Who's, who's going to be your husband in heaven? Now, you haven't asked it in that outlandish a manner, but you've wondered it because you've been married twice, perhaps. Married to a fine Christian partner, and then they died, and you married someone else and spent several lovely years with that person. And it was a different kind of love, no doubt, but it was love nonetheless. And now, when you think about heaven, who are you going to be with? That's a tough one. Uh, the Mormons and some other groups promise you that in heaven you will be married to your mate for all eternity, and there's a certain appeal to that. But look at what Jesus said. Jesus replied, the people of this age, I've underlined this in my text, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age, I've underlined that, and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Let me say this, and I, I know uh, Thurman has dealt with this in his ministry. Quite often, when there is a death, I go to be with the family, and it is a privilege to walk with people through uh, those difficult times in their lives. I take it quite seriously, and it's a privilege, a front row seat for not the trivial, but the biggest issues of life. Marriage, death, coming to Christ, key moments of life. But I'll be there, and a child has died, or a teenager, or somebody, an untimely death, and somebody will say, well, they are an angel now. Or God needed another angel in heaven, so He took my little one, and now she's an angel. And I do not correct it at the time, because that's not the time to correct that. Not the time to say anything about it. That gives them some comfort, and so, okay. But it just simply isn't true. 
And Jesus is making that very clear here. He's not saying in heaven you will be angels. He's saying you will be like the angels in this. They are not married, nor are they given in marriage. And in heaven, neither will we be. Now, when that's brought up, that instantly divides people. Some people are kind of excited about that. They're looking forward to that kind of a break, you know. Finally, a little peace around here. Or maybe, maybe they had a bad experience in marriage and it did not end well and, and they're kind of sour on the whole thing. So it, it's, appeal, it's an appealing idea to them that in heaven they won't be married. But other people, boy, it really ruins heaven for them. It just makes them feel like, well, I don't want to go. I've got this wonderful marriage. I've got this great family. You mean I'm not going to have that in heaven? Whenever you think about heaven and you have a negative thought about it, that means you don't understand heaven. Heaven is not going to be less. It's going to be greater than. Heaven is always going to be more wonderful than anything you can imagine on earth. I remember being a teenager right here in this church and hearing sermons on the second coming of Christ and the end of the world and how Jesus was coming back soon. And I can remember as a teenager thinking, well, great, I hope he comes, but I, I hope I get to get married first. I hope I get to have children. I hope I get to do this and that. And, and you understand, don't you? We all think that way, but that's because we don't understand heaven. How wonderful and greater than anything we can imagine. Now, there's not going to be marriage in heaven, but that, that doesn't mean you're not going to know your husband and wife. We're going to know even as we are known. Certainly we will. And you'll know these are your children. And I think we'll get together and we'll have wonderful times together. And we'll reminisce like we're doing tonight. And we'll talk about the great old days. But the difference is it's going to be perfect love all around. And we won't need marriage as we have it here. But Jesus doesn't want to talk about that. I don't, let's move on, because I don't know if, if you like that or don't like that. But in either case, Jesus doesn't really want to talk about that. He wants to talk about life after death itself. Now, they brought it up, but they don't believe in it. So he uses this moment to teach them. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But and look, he does something brilliant in verse 37. But in the account of the bush... Even Moses showed, why does he quote Moses to them? Because that's all they believe. They don't read Isaiah. They don't read the Psalms. They don't read Jeremiah. They just read Moses. So he quotes Moses. In the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Isn't that great? He wants to talk about life after death. And here's the wonderful thing. There is life after death. We do live beyond this life. That means more to me the older I get. It means more to me the more folks I have on the other side. And it will mean much more to you as the years go by. Ken Chafin used to teach in one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. He's in heaven now too, but he used to teach his seminary students that when they stand at funerals to preach, 
stand confidently and boldly proclaim resurrection and life everlasting. He said, because that's the only story in town. You've got the only message in town. And that's absolutely true. If you don't believe that, if I didn't believe that, what would I say at a funeral? I wouldn't have a message. No good news. Only despair. If there is no God, if there's no life after death, this life we live now is meaningless and filled with despair. Jesus wants to talk about everlasting life. Verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. What else can they say? Well said, teacher. And no one dared ask him any more questions. That's it. They can't beat him. They try to get around him. They try to catch him. But you can't do that. So wise is his answer. Now, right in the middle of this press conference, Jesus drops a nuclear bomb. Sometimes that happens in a press conference. Uh, The uh, president or whoever will be answering questions. And then they'll drop in a statement that just explodes. And Jesus does that theologically. Uh, There are times in history where things like that have happened. Back in uh, the 1960 campaign, Nixon is running against Kennedy, and Eisenhower is the president. And Eisenhower is giving a press conference. And, of course, Nixon has been his vice president for eight years. And uh, his claim to fame is, I've been vice president for eight years. So, so I, I've been on the inside. I know all the issues. I was right there at Ike's side when he's making these decisions. And so I have a right to be president. So a reporter asked President Eisenhower, Sir, can you tell us one thing that Vice President Nixon has contributed to a decision you've made in your eight years as president? One thing. Eisenhower brushed off the question, changed the subject, but the reporter came back, asked it a different way, but basically the same question. Is there any one thing that Vice President Nixon did that made a difference? Can you think of one thing? He brushed it off again, but a third time the questioner asked, and now Eisenhower is just kind of, he's just kind of upset and angry at the questioner, and he says this, well, if you'll give me a week, I'll try to think of something. And there are those who say that's what sealed Nixon's defeat. You can't come back from that. Give me a week and I'll try to think of something. Well, that was a nuclear bomb that went off in a press conference. Here's Jesus, and it's right at really at the beginning of it. Verse 9. We didn't look at these verses. Look at them now. He went on to tell the people this parable. Now, Thurman, you're teaching parables. You didn't do this one, did you? Okay. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. As soon as he says those words, everybody's mind, if they were intelligent, everybody's mind went to a particular passage in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 5. They're all thinking about that. Keep your finger here and go over to that for a minute. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. 
He dug it up and cleared uh, stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than what I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. Everybody thought of that because it sounded very like that. Go back to Luke. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers. Now the story changes a little bit. Rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Again, echoing Isaiah 5. What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then shall the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priest looked for a way to arrest him immediately. Look at this line. Because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Have you ever been sitting in church and you, you could swear that the pastor's talking directly at you. I mean, he's been reading your mail. He's been in your computer. He knows something about you. He saw you go and saw, he did something. And now he's preaching right at you. Do you ever get that feeling that the sermon is just for you? I heard about a woman who was notorious in her church as a gossip. She was uh, the chief gossip in the church. And uh, one of the things she would do is she was always putting down others. And every Sunday, no matter what the preacher preached on, when he would go to the door at the end of the service and people would file out, she would always take his hand and she would say, Preacher, you really let him have it today. You really gave it to him today. And he knows she's the one who needs it more than anybody else, but she didn't get it. It's, it's always for somebody else. Well, one Sunday it snowed. And nobody was able to get to church except the pastor who lived next door and the woman who lived across the street. So it's just the woman sitting there and the pastor preaching. And he's got to decide, do I, do I preach 
what I really need to say to her, and he decided to go for it. And so he spent 45 minutes preaching on everything wrong about her. He just nailed it, everything wrong about her. And then he prayed the benediction, went to the door, and couldn't wait for her to get there. What is she going to say? And she took his hand in hers and said, Preacher, if they'd have been here, you'd have really let them have it today. Well, these guys are smarter than that. They know he's talking just to them. We wonder, why do the scribes and the Pharisees, why, why do they hate Jesus so much? It's because of stories like this. Now look at the parable for a minute. The vineyard uh, throughout the Bible is an image for Israel. The man planting the vineyard is God. We learn two things about God, or two things are underlined about God in that story. Number one, He's Creator. He's sovereign. It all belongs to Him. And we learn that He is Father. He's a Father who has a Son. There are a few, a handful of references to God as Father in the Old Testament, but always Father of the nation Israel. It wasn't until Jesus came along that we learned that God wants to be our Father. In fact, He taught us to pray that way. When you pray, say, Our Father. And we can call Him Abba Father, Daddy, Father. Jesus taught us that. That whole new relationship. But it's underscored here. He's, he's sovereign Lord and He is Father. The tenants who are running the vineyard, they are the religious leaders standing there in front of Jesus. They're the authorities. They're the ones who have the power. And they're controlling the real estate. Now, if you've ever owned rental property, you know how hard it is sometimes to collect rent and how to deal with the tenants. And so this landowner, God, is having trouble with these tenants. And so he sends servants to collect. The servants here are the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And in this particular story, they're trying to get the tenants to understand God's ownership. But they reject them. They beat them up. They refuse to hear them. They kick them out. It's like the repo man or a bill collector. They slam the door in his face. They won't take their calls. I have nothing to do with them. They reject the prophets. Remember just before uh, Stephen is executed in Acts chapter 7, he asked the question, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? It's always been the story. They always rejected the prophets. They would uh, cause them to flee for their lives. They'd throw them in a well. They'd kill them. John the Baptist was beheaded. That's always the story. Those who dare to speak for God and to bring God's truth sometimes have a rough end. What is the, what is the landowner supposed to do? What shall I do? Verse 13, I will send my son. The son is obviously... Jesus, I will send my son. Certainly, surely they will receive him. What's going through the minds of these tenants? What are they thinking of disregarding the servants and even contemplating killing the heir? What are they thinking? Well, there was a tradition in that time that if you work the land for three years and there wasn't a clear deed to the land, you could make a claim for it if there wasn't another heir. 
So in their twisted minds, they think, well, if we kill the air, there won't be an air. And we've been working the land, so we'll get it. It will be ours. And so they kill the son, which is what they're going to do with Jesus. What then shall the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. There's going to be violence here. Jesus is going to be executed on Friday. But what's God going to do? He's going to take the vineyard away from these people and give it to others. He's going to give it to Gentiles. He's going to give it to you and to me as the church. They're furious. They can't believe this. He's saying this directly to them. Your days are numbered. You're not going to be the power much longer. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The word stone there is very similar in spelling to the word son back up in verse 13. In the Hebrew language, just one letter's difference. So it's kind of a play on words. Jesus is the stone which the builders have rejected. Well, they're furious. Let me show you another time they're furious. Go down to verse 45. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and in the places of honor at banquets. But they devour widows' houses, and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men, and they're standing right there, such men will be punished most severely. Why don't they like Jesus? Because of things like that. He's called them out. He knows who they are. And He's speaking the truth. Tomorrow night we're going to look at 21. And 21 starts with a a widow putting money, little tiny coins in the collection box. It goes right from what Jesus said about the, the teachers of the law devouring widows' resources. It goes right into that story. And we'll see that tomorrow night. Well, I thank you for being here. You've been so attentive. And uh, read ahead for chapter 21, and we will be ready for tomorrow night. Thanks for listening to this service at First Baptist Church. We hope you've been strengthened in your faith. We want to encourage you to visit our website at fbcsuffolk.org for more information about the church and about following Jesus. God bless you today.